Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Black Friday, and it is the season for holiday shop. And we know, though, this year it is not about doorbuster deals this year. It is about shopping in a social distancing world. And, Paul, I know you and Vonnie Quinn talked earlier with Dana Telsey. She said the consumer is pretty healthy. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, they're looking forward, despite all the craziness in the world here, the consumer does have some liquidity as well. Yeah, well, let's let's get to somebody who's got a front row seat on all of this. Jim Fallon is editorial director of Women's Wear Daily. He joins us on the phone from Terrytown, New York. So, Jim, great to have you here with Paul and myself. The Westchester Mall, not too far from you guys. But as we are hearing, colleagues are sending in, they're talking about the malls in Riverhead and so on and so forth, the outlets, everything's very quiet. It's a very different black. Friday this year? Extremely different. And I think it's going to be a very different holiday season all overall. I mean, it's if any time is going to be an online holiday, this is the year. And the question is, will it ever go back to what it used to be? So, Jim, I think, you know, I think it was, as we've heard from retailers, really over the last several years, we've heard about this concept of omni-channel, kind of you know, being online, bricks and mortar, you know, talk to us what omnichannel means to you and how we're seeing that play out uh, this holiday season. Well, they were, omnichannel basically is now y- utilizing your brick and mortar assets in a way that is going to pretty much drive traffic to your website. I mean, I okay. think Deloitte or, um, or Adobe predicted a 116% increase in um, buy online pickup in store curbside pickup so you're seeing walmart you're seeing target you're seeing all these retailers really using their store base to fulfill orders from online um, especially with the surge in online orders and worries over delivery and things like that so whereas omnichannel used to be oh you know, we have our store and we also have our website and we're bringing the two together. Now it's really how can we use our store base to fulfill orders from online? And yes, customers might come in, but not in the numbers that they used to. Yeah, I listen, I got to say to you, I, 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 I've done a lot of shopping already. <laughs> and the packages, as I've warned our team today, that I've got to listen for the door when packages are dropped because we have some porch pirates in the neighborhood. So I've got to be careful and get them. But, but what's interesting, Jim. I don't Jim, want to know your neighborhood. <laughs> it's a good neighborhood. It's just they know the packages that are delivered are really good, too. Um, but what's interesting is when I order, I think about what's the exchange policy, how easy it, how much is it going to cost for shipping back and forth? Because I love shopping online, but I'm often ordering multiple sizes and doing things like that. But I look at the store policies and that really determines where I shop a lot now. No, that's that's a very good point. And I think consumers are going to become more and more wary and informed about those types of things. And also the key crunch point is the delivery times. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think predictions are now that pretty much December 11th is going to be the cutoff. I keep hearing different opinions. On the one hand, a lot of people say, oh, consumers are much more forgiving. They recognize the crunch on retailers. Uh, And so if packages don't arrive on time, they're much more forgiving. And I keep thinking to myself, 
they're forgiving until December 24th when they're waiting for that one gift for their loved one that's right. not arrived. Um, and then, um, so I think it's going to be a lot of pressure on retailers this year, particularly the logistics systems. And a, again, the benefit is how quickly they can leverage their store bases to fulfill those orders and drive the consumer to the store to pick up the product. Because again, that gives the retailer bigger margin. Um, you know, so, the, key, the key question of this holiday is going to be, yes, growth of online, but what are the margins going to look like? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, Jim, you know, we're seeing boxes pile up outside of pretty much everybody's door up and down the street here. Talk to us about luxury. I mean, if I'm going to spend a lot of money on a luxury watch, does that also work in an e-tail, e-commerce type of environment? Or, I wanna, or do you find consumers want to go to the store, look at it, hold it, feel it, all that kind of stuff? Surprisingly, the luxury players are saying that more and more consumers are shopping online for those very high-priced items. It's also forced those luxury players to offer those items online because luxury, very much to your point, was kind of snobbish about a lot of things, but very much snobbish about the online experience. They thought the consumer wanted that personal touch, personal service, had to be in the store, etc., now, because consumers haven't been, you know, stores were closed, they didn't have access to those consumers, so they were setting up a lot of online shopping, a lot of video conferencing type shopping, um, and, you know, the retailers I've spoken to have said they've sold jewelry worth hundreds of thousands of dollars via video conference, and just then drove it up to the woman's house and dropped it off, basically. <laughs> So, this is, this um, is what I think. I think this is something that's really dramatically different. We, we caught up with the CEO of Watches of Switzerland, and they talked about how, you know, the whole idea of online shopping shifted to we were, you know, thank you, Zoom and all these other platforms that we were setting up, you know, sales personnel with customers online and doing, you know, like we would be at a counter, right? Like the shifting you know, that we move to that, you know, change in kind of how we shop and that that is something that will probably stay with us. Uh, and I think about that, how important that could be for especially luxury goods. Very much so. And as I said, I don't think it may slip back a little bit when hopefully the vaccines take effect and people are, are protected against the virus and so forth. But this behavior is a fundamental shift in the way everybody's going to shop. And mm -hmm. I think it's the combination of convenience if you can get that personal service even via Zoom or whatever, then you might not travel to a store. And, and you know, in, in a sense, traveling to a store um, versus getting the one-on-one -on -one Zoom experience, you might get better attention actually via Zoom, ironically. <laughs> so, Jim, what are some of the uh, items that are hot this year and what are some of the items that maybe are not? Um, I think, you know, you're going to see the normal electronics seems to be taking off a lot of TV discounts today, um, apparel, the sweaters, the, you know, the things like that. Jewelry may do well because, again, it's one of the few things that you, women particularly will be able to show off when they're on their conference calls on the computer at home. Um, hey, I think guys like, like to that. show off like that new watch as well. I'm just going to yeah. put that out there. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, that's true, very much. Um, and so, you know, very much tops because – None of us wear bottoms when we're on, on the computers. <laughs> All right, um, full disclosure, I have a bottom on right now. <laughs> no, there you go. That's good. Um, but ironically, you are seeing some growth in shoes and things like that. Yeah. What the consumers at all price points are beginning to under are beginning to do is 
they want to treat themselves. They're not eating out in restaurants. They're not going on vacation. So there's been this spending boom because it's like I have this liquidity, as you mentioned earlier in the program. I want to do something with it. I need a treat. And so they're spending money on things right. that they might not wear right away, but they're kind of buying for when this, this horrible experience is over. Well, Jim, have a good holiday season. I'm sure we'll be checking in with you throughout. Jim Fallon, Editorial Director of Women's Wear Daily, joining us on the phone from Tarrytown. Next guest is a really fascinating story here. She has positioned her company as the Peloton of Education by connecting teachers from around the country to schools struggling to find teachers by taking over a classroom with live stream instruction. Let's get the latest. We welcome Shaley Barnwall, CEO of Elevate K-12. through Shaley, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about your company, about the, the issue you're trying to address. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on. So when we talk about the problem that we're trying to solve, keep COVID aside, it's a plaguing problem in the U.S. K-12 schools and districts, which is of the teacher shortage. Now, in the past, there was already a teacher shortage problem that existed that we were solving. Uh, according to the Learning Policy Institute, there were over 500,000 teacher vacancies or uncertified substitute teachers teaching in the classrooms. With COVID now, that problem has actually uh, grown several times. So according to the American Federation of Teachers, one in three K-12 teachers is expected to retire early due to COVID. So if you just talk about the problem right now, the teacher shortage problem across the U.S. K-12 school districts already existed. And with COVID, it's just accelerating at a much higher rate. And that is the problem that we're solving when there isn't that grade four math teacher or the grade six science teacher or the high school cybersecurity teacher not existing in the local zip code, how can you bring that same power of amazing teaching into the classroom by live streaming it so that zip code is not a barrier to the access to high quality teaching for the students that we serve? Shaylee, one thing I want to ask you is you said there were already over 500,000 teaching substitutes in our system. Why is it so, that sounds like a really high number. Is it? Help me out here. Right. So the way you have to think about a pro- about this problem is it's not really that the supply of teachers overall, right? So if you look at the overall demand for teachers, as of today, there are 3.1 million K-12 teachers in the school system. The supply may be slightly higher than that, mm-hmm. but where it breaks is the geographic arbitrage. We do a lot of work, let's say, in South Georgia, Dirty County, Right. Sometimes it's impossible for them to find a Spanish teacher there or a calculus teacher. But there's a high supply of teachers, uh, of calculus teachers, maybe in San Francisco. So the problem really is of a geographic arbitrage. I am surprised that there is not more conversation about this problem as we talk about reskilling America and reskilling rural America uh, in specifics. So the problem exists, A, because of that. The second reason the problem exists is what the children need to learn is changing. We have a lot of conversations about STEM, computer science, cybersecurity. If a school district can't find a grade four math teacher, Carol, go figure how are they ever going to find a computer science teacher? So the problem really existed. People were talking about it, but I think COVID has just brought this problem center and completely upfront on this is a problem plaguing 
mostly the low-income neighborhoods in the country. Well, and I think about, Paul, like, you probably thought about it with your kids. I know my parents did. They thought about when they bought a house, where we were going to grow up, and what Mm -hmm. kind of education. That was a big thing, and we know it's just not equal, right, Paul, you know, around the country. Absolutely. And and Shaley, I'm I'm just wondering what the – you know, what the, this country has been dealing with really for the last eight months as it relates to education, much, much more virtual uh, education. What are your thoughts on the viability, the quality of that virtual experience vis-a-vis the in-person experience since you've had so much experience with it? Thank you so much for asking that question. I think it's a very important question to be asked. Um, you will see a lot of articles now talking about virtual education is not working, online learning is not working. I don't think virtual education or online learning is not working. What is really not working is the way it is being done. Over the last several years, we as a company have honed in on the specifics of what makes real life teaching impactful. Engagement, pedagogy, the way you teach, how is the teacher being a uh, how is the teacher being uh, like uh, evaluated? What are you doing in a life synchronous environment? If you think about virtual teaching now and what you see with your children, what they've basically done is taken a platform like Zoom or Google Meet that was built for business and bandaged it and said, hey, K-12 schools and districts, let's use it. And that's the reason it's not working, because it wasn't built for a child. It wasn't built for engagement. The teachers didn't go through the right amount of training. The teachers are not going to the right amount of quality audits because everybody's just scrambling to fill. Let's get something out to the kids. The instruction loss that is going to happen specifically in the low-income neighborhoods, because your children... Paul and Carol still, you know, you have Wi-Fi at home, you have laptops, you have electricity. When COVID hit, the transition was easy. We work with some school districts when COVID hit. The only thing that the superintendent would say is, we got to first make sure that the meals are delivered to the kids. Mm. Some of these kids don't have electricity at home. Some of them don't have Wi-Fi. So there were different issues there. My viewpoint is virtual learning and online learning works if it's done well. And the three pillars, that make it highly effective is great technology built for K-12. Right. Absolutely amazing rock star teachers and great content. You know, Carol, uh, mm. I'm fortunate to live in a town that has uh, a very good school system, but this summer as school was just about to open, I saw for the first time signs in front of the schools uh, recruiting substitute teachers. I guess the district was wow. really anticipating with the COVID that there would be a greater need for substitute teachers. So if it's happening in, in, in strong school districts, mm-hmm. you got to really wonder kind of where we are and some of the others. And fortunate to continue our discussion with Elevate K-12 through CEO Shaley Baranwal. Shaley, again, just highlighted to me uh, this issue of teachers and give us a sense is this are you finding that there is a growing shortage of teachers or maybe just that arbitrage that you were talking about earlier that's really a regional thing so i would answer that question in two phases number one and the first problem is the geographic arbitrage right if i look at the supply of teachers right now But however, when we think about building a company, when we think about reforming a complete industry, you have to think about what this is going to do long term. And I do believe that as the percentage of people in general taking teaching certifications or wanting to be teachers reduces, 
this problem is going to further increase. And rather than just impacting the low-income neighborhoods, very soon may actually impact the high-income neighborhoods. So what we need to do as a, as a society, what we need to do as a company, is not just think about the problems that we are solving right now, but also think about what are the strategies and measures that need to be taken now to continue to improve the supply of teachers, like to make teaching a fun profession again, where millennials and want to be teachers and they're not worried about that being a teacher they may not get paid a lot or where do they want to live i think one thing that covid has done is you know what people can live anywhere they want and with our live streaming instruction teachers can teach straight into a classroom where the kids are in one physical location from anywhere they want so i look at it in two phases and that's how i see the problem evolving so don't you think all of, I also think there's something wrong with us as a society, Shaley, that I don't think there is a lot of respect for teachers. We certainly don't pay mm-hmm. them often enough. <laughs> and we also ask teachers to often buy their own supplies, you know, contribute. You know, there's something wrong. I didn't grow up where my parents had to buy, you know, we bought the things I basically needed, but the school supplied a lot. And I, Something's happened in our world, despite the amount of money that we haven't spent on taxes and, and it goes into education. We've gotten, I don't know, we've really kind of gotten messed up. So how do we pay teachers more so that people want to be a teacher and come into the occupation? How do we make sure schools are funded in the right way? Mm-hmm. So actually, so we do surveys of um, of our teachers, right? We have a network of over 1,000 teachers in the U.S. They're located everywhere. They teach online. They teach live. And when we do our surveys, Carol, and we ask them, why did you leave a school district to work with us? What caused it? And the number one reason was because they were so done with a lot of bureaucracies and politics that happens within a school district where they went into teaching for the joy of teaching. So frankly, it's not so much the money, it's actually the rest of the systems around it that plugs the teachers out of a school system. Definitely paying them well, making teaching a high paid job is definitely a plus. And I'm hoping that with some of the laws changing, with some of the policies coming in, we see more and more of that. Uh, Teachers want flexibility. Like a lot of our teachers are from North Dakota. They're from Oklahoma, where they live in small towns where the cost of living is low, but they're teaching in a big town in, let's say, North Carolina and into a classroom. So I think that's what is causing them to leave the profession. And if you look at the root cause analysis of that and start targeting each one of those, you will see more and more teachers come back into the system like we've currently partners with companies like Sylvan Learning where we're code sharing our teachers we're partnering with University of Phoenix talking to these universities on how you can make your teaching curriculum more impactful that more millennials and the younger generation want to get into this profession and teach the way they want to maybe from a beach and how do you make it flexible for them <laughs> okay I'm in yeah. uh, you sold me <laughs> but what's interesting I have a cousin I mean she's retired now and probably would have kept teaching a few more years but you mentioned bureaucracy um you know, talk to me about situations where schools didn't back up teachers against parents and it became where teachers were, you know, kind of having to reprimand kids or it, it just got really difficult. And I do wonder, you know, that dynamic, how what, what you're hearing about that as well. 
Yeah, I would say that probably not uh, every school district goes through that. Uh, we have the fortune of working with some amazing school districts where their leaders and superintendents care a lot about their staff because, again, it's like any other organization, right? You care for your people, you give them the right tools, and the entire organization flourishes. So specifics, what I have heard about is, number one is the time commitment required, right? Like as a teacher, you may think that that 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. is where your life ends. No, your life kind of continues beyond that. So the um, the number of hours of work that they have to do beyond the 8 to 3 is what pushes a lot of teachers from a regular brick-and-mortar system to working with us online. The second is the flexibility of time. More than 60% of the K-12 teaching population is women. More than 83% of our teaching population is women, right? Mm, so you see mm-hmm. the difference there. And they are between 32 to 48. They're a mother with a teaching certification. So they need that flexibility that I can work and I can also, you know, be at home when needed. So that flexibility that the gig economy has offered to a lot of other industries, it's high time that it comes to K-12 now. And that's what we're trying to change. Shaley, just quickly, what is you, mm-hmm. most school districts, I would say, around the country are really struggling with virtual learning. What do you, mistakes do you think they're making? What advice would you give them to try to improve their virtual learning? I think the first, the only advice that I would give them, actually not the first one, is believe in synchronous teaching. What the difference between synchronous and asynchronous learning and teaching. Asynchronous, so a lot of remote teaching that's happening not with Elevate K-12 but without Elevate K-12 is a teacher would come online, teach for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then that's synchronous teaching, and then give asynchronous work to the kids to do on their own, watch a video, self-paced learning. Again, it goes back to the have and the have-nots, right? Like your children would be proactive, would want to do asynchronous learning, maybe or maybe not, I'm not sure. But a lot of the students who we serve, there isn't a culture of success. They don't have those examples. So what is really not working is the lack of synchronous live teaching into remote learning. Online learning is not live learning. And I think the the industry and the country needs to start understanding the difference between the two. That's a really good, important uh, yep. distinction, especially as we move forward and we expect that this online learning is going to kind of stay with us in some form or another. Um, Shaley, thank you so much. Shaley Barron-Wall, she is founder and CEO of Elevate K-12. Uh, check out more about what they're doing. You can go online and find out about that. Paul, you know, we talk a lot about diversification when it comes to investing, mm-hmm. right? And that often includes some hard, tangible assets, including wine, which is what our next guest knows about. Anthony Zhang, he's a repeat entrepreneur. He has founded and sold a couple of companies. His current venture is as co-founder and CEO of VinoVest, excuse me, a tech platform for investing in wine. And he joins us on the phone in Los Angeles. Um, Anthony, it's nice to have you here with Paul and myself. First of all, how are you doing? And I'm, I'm curious about the pandemic impact, um, how, what it's had on your business, especially go back to April and then kind of where we are today. Absolutely. And first of all, thank you you two both for having me on yeah um, I think with the pandemic with a lot of folks being uh, you know locked down and certainly drinking a lot more wine I think we've seen a lot of tailwinds especially in the high-end wine investing market as coupled with that a lot of savvy investors are thinking of ways where they can diversify away from traditional stocks and find other assets where they can start to hedge some of their profits so um, I think with our company as well as with a lot of other alternative investing companies, we've started to see a lot more 
uh, openness and interest from retail investors and institutional investors alike. So, Anthony, tell us about your company. How does it facilitate uh, investing in fine wine? Absolutely. Our company makes it simple and accessible for anybody to be able to to invest into fine wine as an asset class. So not only do we actually help with the selection, we also help our investors store their wine, insure their wine, as well as provide a platform for liquidity into selling their wine whenever they want. So if I deposit some money with you or give you some money, will you go out and buy a basket of wines for me to invest in? Or how how, how does that work? How do you decide what I should be buying, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, we do take a basket approach in that uh, based on your, uh, maybe your risk tolerance, your investment timeline, as well as how much money you have to actually invest, we're able to then have our team, as well as the algorithms that we've built, be able to construct a portfolio of wines that could be right for you. So just like in the traditional stock market, you've got your equivalent of blue chip stocks or uh, maybe your emerging market stocks. Uh, There's the same thing in the wine world. There are some wine regions and producers that are a bit more established than others that have um, really predictable gains as the wines mature in age. And there's also newer and hotter up and coming regions that may be a little bit more speculative, but can also deliver returns that are above above market. Hey, Anthony, I'm curious about your demographics, because if, if we wanted to get started, I mean, you can start, you know, for as little as $1,000, right? I think that's your standard um, kind that's of platform. Correct. Premium is 50000 You have to have a minimum balance. And then you, there's the Grand Cru, which is about a quarter of a million dollars um, minimum balance. Who do you have the most of on your platform? I'd say we definitely still have the most of our standard plans. So most folks, I think, are uh, really unfamiliar with investing in wine. Maybe they've heard of a friend or two who has a couple of expensive bottles and they're familiar with the general concept of wine going uh, up over time as it ages and gets more expensive. But um, most people don't really know where to start. And that's really where we want to be is be that accessible entry point for someone to be able to maybe start with a few thousand dollars to diversify away from the stock market, then build on from there as to become more knowledgeable and comfortable. Anthony, how is this, how is wine done as an asset class from an investment perspective and kind of what benchmark do you, do you look at or, or should we look at? Yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of the performance of the fine wine market over the past 30 to 40 years, it's outperformed the S&P 500. It's had annualized returns of a little bit under 12%. And I think on top of just the strong annual performance, what really stands out to most investors is the lack of volatility. It's really, really slow and steady. Over the last 30 years, it's only had six down years, which um, I think as something to diversify into that has lower volatility and really strong gains makes it a really attractive asset class, regardless of the fact that it's wine. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, The Economist had a story, I think it might have been last year, just talking specifically about Burgundy wine <laughs> investors um, beating the stock market. Um, no pun intended, how liquid is it? So you, you invest, you buy bottles, or you have a portfolio created for you. You can ultimately sell those bottles, right? And I'm curious how easy, how quickly that can be done. You can also ultimately, right, drink those bottles? 
Absolutely. So uh, since we are allowing each client to actually buy the whole bottle or buy the whole case of wine, and we're not securitizing it into some sort of a, a fund or some sort of fractional ownership, the client enjoys the benefit of actually having that direct ownership over the physical asset, which means regardless of what happens to the price of the wine, they can still choose to drink it, enjoy it, gift it, whatever they like. Um, and to your question about liquidity, we really only put a, um, you know, put a premium on the wines that already have existing demand on the secondary market. So a lot of these top Burgundy wines or Bordeaux wines or ones from Napa, um, they're always in high demand. So we can be able to say, um, if you wanted to sell off your portfolio positions tomorrow, uh, we could get you out of those positions in a matter of a couple weeks because there are so many investors or collectors on the consumption side that want that wine. All right. So, Anthony, I'm a value stock investor. How do I bring that over to the wine business? What's the up-and-coming hot region or hot grower that I should be looking at right now? It's called a screw top, uh, Paul, and <laughs> exactly. it comes in a carton. <laughs> From New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, that's definitely the value there. But I'd say for, for investment wines, what you want to do is not look at the, the creme de la creme, right? Those ones everybody knows and those prices have, have been skyrocketing for the past few years. What you want to do is take an established region and maybe find some up-and-coming producers from that established region. So looking at Burgundy, there's, there's producers that are selling bottles of wines for $10,000, $20,000 a bottle, but there are also ones that are maybe 500 bucks, 1000 bucks a bottle, and uh, you know that they're, they're going to be climbing into those uh, stratospheric price ranges in the next few years. Another approach is to take a completely uh, up-and-coming wine region as a whole. So you're looking at the impact of something like climate change, Right. Previously, places like Oregon in the past decade have really, really started to blossom in popularity. And even a lot of these top Burgundy producers are actually buying up land there because they see that as the future of producing the best wine in the world as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.